welcome to the Cake Sugar Coach podcast. Join me each week as I interview experts who will share the science of sugar, sugar addiction, and different approaches to recovery. We hope to empower you with the information and inspiration, insights, and strategies you need to break up with sugar and fall in love with healthy whole foods so you can prevent and reverse chronic disease, lose weight, boost your mood, and energy. Feel free to go to my website for details on my coaching programs and to access free resources, kicksugarcoach.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kick Sugar Coach podcast. I have a very long bio and a very brilliant mind and a very uh, accomplished expert in the area of addictions and sugar and food addiction. So bear with me while I share all of her credentials. Dr. Claire Wilcox, MD, is a psychiatrist and addiction psychiatrist in New Mexico. She's an associate professor of the Mind Research Network, adjunct faculty at the University of New Mexico. Um, she uh, did her medical degree at the University of Minnesota, did a residency in internal medicine at the University of Colorado, a second residency in psychiatry at the University of California in San Fran, as well as an addiction psychiatry residency at the University of New Mexico. She has treated hundreds of patients with addictive disorders, including those with obesity uh, and eating disorders. Using evidence-based pharmacological and behavioral interventions, she has gone on to write a book called a textbook called Food Addiction, Obesity and Disorders of Overeating, an evidence-based assessment and clinical guide, which was published in late 2021. And it is the culmination of years of passionate interest and personal experience with food addiction and food addiction recovery. And she's very passionate about not just helping individuals, but helping the medical the medical field very broadly understand that this is a thing. This is really a thing. And that the more we understand about it and the more we can do a front level, entry level assessments and diagnosis and get them into the right treatment programs, the more people we can help. So welcome, Dr. Wilcox. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with your story? So I understand that you have are walking the path of recovery from sugar food addiction yourself. I am. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's been a long study process. It has not been an all, you know, like a one moment, everything was better sort of thing. It's been a, a lifelong, um, you know, at some points battle, but right now it's in a really good space. So I'm happy about that. Um, but yeah, I ended up um, stopping drinking. I quit drinking about 20 years ago because I was overindulging and it was getting a little frightening for me. And um, also at the same time was I started smoking when I was 15. So I was up to two packs a day, could not quit cigarettes for anything. It was, you know, a little hard to quit drinking. It was really hard to quit smoking. And um, so that, you know, was something that I struggled with. I didn't, I had my last cigarette in 2007, but it was a long time coming and many, many quit attempts. So, um, and then when I stopped drinking, but even before that, I was, you know, eating. So I would, you know, when I was drinking too much, I would sort of eat at the end of the evening, too much pizza, lasagna, something like that. It was, but when I stopped drinking, it was like, I switched, um, one-to-one to to eating like sugary. And I, I was very specific, kind of like the way I was very specific about the brand of cigarettes and the brand of alcohol that I would drink. The, you know, the food that I went towards, the brand was specific. It was the same. It was just very like ritualistic and pattern and sitting in front of the TV and watching and, and overeating in the evening times. 
And I was quite, you know, it was just crazy. Um, so, so I ended up, um, you know, I was God, like that would have been, you know, it was over 20 years ago. So, you know, I basically struggled with that, um, until let's see, um, you know, confused therapy, individual therapy, you know, knowing there was some sort of problem with my brain and knowing that there was an addiction, it must be an addiction, but really just not finding that external validation in the world out there. And, you know, I went to some OA meetings, but for whatever reason, it just wasn't as catalytic for me as the AA. I did use AA for the drinking and I found it very helpful for that, but the OA just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't make the change happen. Um, and so, um, so I, um, you know, sort of just being in the medical field myself, I was a doctor, um, going into addiction psychiatry. Um, you know, I started getting kind of obsessed with that idea, like, is this, is this possibly addictive and is it sugar? What is it? And how do you get out of it? And, um, and finally convinced myself through reading and gathering articles that, you know, it really was addictive. I quit sugar, go back, quit sugar, go back, quit sugar, go back. But, um, because, you know, the justifications, if you don't have an external world that tells you, that sugar is addictive, it's really hard to stick with it. Whereas, you know, cigarettes, everybody knows they're addictive. So, you know, like I got to stay away from it. Um, and um, so um, finally somewhere back there, gosh, when was it? Um, probably around, let's see. Well, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. I just um, was able to let go of sugar for the most part. I still played with maple syrup and all fruit jelly. For a long time, just eat it in very tiny bits, and just couldn't quite let go of that. Um, and um, but I was able to. Um, I just stopped eating sugar, and it was like night and day. It was so awesome! Like everything, I didn't have to think about how much I ate. You know, and I had gained quite a bit of weight too. I was, um, you know, in the just verging on obesity at that point. Um, wow! And wow. Um, so um, yeah, I just stopped eating sugar and. I, that's all it, the cravings went away. The obsessions went away. I exercised a ton, not in a sort of, you know, disordered way, but because it made me feel great and it seemed to help with the impulse control. And it just was something that I got a lot of joy out of. And I think the combination of letting go of the sugar and just, you know, loving being outside and doing the exercise, um, was, um, the thing that catalyzed me to just like not have any, I just didn't have the thought of it very often but then about like covid time which i think a lot of us you know kind of discovered new problems with our <laughs> food plans during covid anyway i did but the maple syrup and all fruit jelly came in with a vengeance and um i um started realizing too that just even you know i would overeat things like bread and butter at home and um stuff like that so i kind of have made you know and fought it tooth and nail for a couple, like a year, finally made the shift to letting go of, um, um, most flour. I still eat it in certain contexts. For some reason I can pull it off in a restaurant or something. Um, and, um, letting go of, um, you know, all fruit jelly and maple syrup, which is a disaster now. There's just no, I mean, I just can't do it. So, um, so, you know, my, that's my personal story and sort of in parallel with all of this personal, like back and forth, back and forth and fighting with myself. And I worked in an eating disorders clinic, which said that quitting sugar is, you know, really not like a, that that's a orthorexia. So I wondered, oh, do I have like an eating disorder? Like, I don't know what's going on, you know, another eating disorder. Um, and, um, but, but the, um, 
you know, in parallel with all this, I continued to do the research, um, uh, you know, looking at the literature, because I'm a scientist, I'm a researcher, um, and I'm a clinician, and I believe in evidence-based medicine. And so I started studying it and wrote this textbook, which just, you know, the evidence is very difficult to refute. Um, It is overwhelming now, isn't it? It's overwhelming. And then, you know, that combined with like, the food junkies podcast, I started listening to that, which was like super helpful because it's all these like really bright, validating people in that podcast too. Um, you know, that it's just like, oh, this is real. This isn't in my head. So there's sort of a community through via podcast listening, I think that can be very powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I think that combination of the community and then just having done a lot of work on myself, therapy, blah, 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 throughout the years in, in a general sense um, with, the, with the other addictions. Um, that combination has just culminated in, you know, I've had a great six months. Not going to wait. Anyway, things are going pretty good. Um, and um, yeah, so so I like I like where things are and I don't think about food and, um, you know, my weight is in a healthy place. I don't think about my body. It's just fine. Um, and I'm like, I feel literally like I'm free of the obsession. So it's 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 pretty cool. Um, it's very cool. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting, and I can imagine that all the research you were doing, well, you were, you were, it was dawning on you. This, this is an addiction. You, you were just telling me briefly about a story when you were working with individuals that were addicted to cocaine, and you would do these. Tell us about the motivational interviewing you do for hours, and you know how that yeah. connected the dots for you. Yeah, I mean that's just yet another story. I think there's just so many work. I work with, I've worked with many different. Um, you know, substance use disorders populations throughout my, you know, decade or more of being an addiction psychiatrist. And, um, but yeah, there's, there was this period of time where I was um, working on a study, um, looking at a treatment of cocaine use disorders, a therapeutic intervention. And as part of the study, we needed somebody to do the motivational interviewing piece. And I love motivational interviewing. I'm, you know, a huge fan of it. It just clicked with me. The second I learned it, I thought, oh my God, this is, you know, all these other types of therapy they trained me about. Like they're very totally useful. I, you know, there's a lot of other modalities that are great, but motivational interviewing just like blew me away. So anyway, um, I would do motivational interviewing with these patients who had cocaine use disorder um, or or methamphetamine use disorder, and the stories they would tell about, you know, pros and cons, how they want to quit, but then they would, you know justify that maybe they could do a little, but then the whole evening would be ruined. And then they would, you know, sort of go overboard and their life just kept spinning out, but they couldn't stop. And, you know, the way they would describe their um, experiences of their, of their addiction and um, the feelings they would have and sort of the binge pattern of overuse um, and all that stuff just felt so familiar um, in terms of my use of sugar. It just felt like this, you know, how they would, what it would feel like when they used the cocaine for the first, you know, time after they hadn't used it for a while, like sort of physical sensations in the chest and face or whatever, like everything they described. I was like, holy cow, I've never done stimulants, thank God. But, um, you know, it just was very interesting to me how um, the pattern, the sort of descriptive patterns were were similar. And um, so, yeah. Yeah, that must be wild. Like here you are, you know, uh, uh, an addiction psychiatrist, the expert listening, doing hours of motivational interviewing with people who are trying to get free from cocaine addiction. And you're like, yes, that's me. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I got, I, I got you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and I think the thing that's been especially hard with sugar is, um, you know, for for many of us who, if we don't know that this is a real thing and our our worlds, our societies, our culture do not justify that it is addictive. I mean, I think despite that, I was um, very, I've been very hard on myself because, you know, I said, okay, well, clearly this is an addiction. I need to stop eating sugar. And I could, you know, I couldn't stick with it. And so, um, because, you know, just getting these messages all the time, you can have just one cookie. Like, why couldn't you just have one cookie? That's really weird. You must have something wrong with your, you, that you, you know, we don't see it as an addictive substance. And, um, so I think that makes it especially hard, but it is an addictive substance and it should be seen that way. Yes, it can be. Absolutely. can be for many of us. Yes, do. Do it. Yes. Yep. And and I think that the the danger in in not having society acknowledge that for some of us it's truly as addictive as any other substance is that we we could then spend 10 years potentially on a couch doing really great therapy potentially but it's not making any progress with our addiction and in the meantime it's progressing and still unraveling the biochemical foundation of our body and our mental wellness and we're getting sicker and you know, uh, as Joe Nifflin says, we're getting fatter, sicker, and more miserable. No, fat, sick, and crazy, more crazy. <laughs> and right, right. and no amount of therapy is going to fix an addiction if you don't understand I need abstinence, right? Yeah, like it's just yeah. you can spin out for years doing all this great work with all kinds of great therapists. And if one of them was informed enough to say, do you think maybe this is an addiction? Maybe we need a, a, a bit of an addiction, uh, you know, intervention here. And then boom, right? Yep. You know, you, you can get to the freedom that you've got today. Yeah. Tell us about how you came to believe that sugar and food is addictive. Um, I, I guess even if, you, if there's anything more you want to add about that in terms of the literature, or the science. Yeah, sure. So so in the um, textbook, which um, is available on Amazon, um, the, uh, you know, I went through and did a kind of, de- well, a couple detailed chapters. So my research has been, I, maybe I should back up a little bit in, um, uh, it's not been in sugar or fruit addiction. It's been in alcohol, mostly alcohol use disorder and um, done a lot of neural imaging. So um, brain imaging, looking at things that activate the reward centers of the brain or the prefrontal cortex or, you know, and sort of how those differ between people with substance use disorders and without substance use disorders, um, for example. Um, and then what can you do intervention wise to change those circuits to get them more looking more normal and people that have addiction. Um, so how can you use treatments to sort of rewire the brain? That's kind of the, the core question that I tried to get at when I was doing more research. I'm not doing as much right now. Um, but, um, you know, I learned through that reading um, and research and writing grants and getting really familiar with the literature that, that the, you know, you have a great like picture on your website of the brain. Like it is a biological, like, the, 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 you know, it's not just, so when people use a drug, um, of any kind, and this is true with food too, um, and then they stop if they're overusing it and they stop, they do go through withdrawal and they feel, you know, a little yucky and want to use it and crave and may have physical symptoms and, um, other things going on as well as the psychological symptoms. Um, but there's the, the really, you know, and it's harder to stay abstinent or to stay away from the drug during that withdrawal period. But withdrawal only lasts like a few weeks um, at, at the most. And then after that, there's just people are at a heightened risk of relapse of going back for years. Right. And so to me, that that vulnerability for years is really where the addiction um you know, where the brain needs support. And um, so that risk of relapse, you know, um, downstream and the 
addiction, um, you know, as I studied it, I saw was rooted in the brain. Like it is, um, and it goes on for weeks to months after the substance has been stopped. So, you know, people with a certain, you know, addiction might, their brain might light up more when they see a cue related to the substance um, in the reward um, centers of the brain. So you walk into a bar, if you have an alcohol problem, your brain might light up more than your reward centers light up more than somebody who doesn't. Um, your brain may be more, you know, some people's brains may be more reactive to stress and um, that may lead them to seek out a drug. Um, and then the impulse control centers of the brain may not work as well in a general sense, um, either from the drug use or just people were born that way. And so they aren't able to sort of um, top down regulate their, you know, either emotions or their impulses, things like that. So these are just biological subs, you know, you can visualize them biologically in, in, in brain studies. And um, so I, you know, kind of got really familiar with that literature when, as, as it related to the kind of more mainstream addictions. And then, you know, started to gather up and organize and look in depth at the studies um, for sugar. And oh my God, they're exactly the same. You know, so the the same reward networks light up, the same impulse control networks are not working as well in people with food addiction and obesity. The dopamine function um, studies, like dopamine is a reward chemical and also a learning chemical. It sort of promotes addiction learning. Um, it's an impulse control chemical. It has a lot of different, you know, broad effects on the brain. But the dopamine function is similar in people with food addiction or obesity and people with substance use disorders. Um, so there's just so much biological like overlap. Um, and um, it's, you know, the animal studies are, you know, the same. So the human studies and the animal studies look the same. In recovery, what's fascinating too is the, the brain gets less and less reactive to those food cues or drug cues. So you look at somebody who's a year out and you expose them to a drug cue, they're not as reactive, meaning they've learned how, you know, their just brains aren't as sensitized. So that's why we get free of the obsession as, you know, time goes on. So anyway, it's just like the studies were like, oh, like hundreds of them, you know what I mean? So I kind of have in my textbook, these two chapters, I think, where I do the neurobiology of substance use disorders and then the neurobiology of, um, food and I bring in like as many, you know, neuroimaging and animal studies, um, which there are thousands of, I mean, there really are, it's just difficult to argue any of this. So. I, I know. And, you know, recently I was sharing in one of my courses that there's on the university of Waterloo. I think that's it. Maybe I shouldn't say in case I got it wrong. There's a university <laughs> from Montreal in Canada, shame to say, being Canadian and all, that it says it's there's this page, Sane Science. It's all about, you know, debunking quackery science. And they literally go to town on sugar addiction. They're like, literally, I could pull it up and show you and you'd be gobsmacked. This is coming from a, a university. Yeah, I'd love to see it. Okay, yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah, it's easy yeah. to find. I have the link. Yeah. And basically, they just argue that, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that sugar is addictive. And I mean, we like it. We're born to like sweet taste. Come on. Yeah, we all overindulge. It was hardly an addiction. And and then they completely bash the work of Dr. Ka um, not Kathleen de Maison, sorry, uh, Nancy, Dr. Nancy Appleton. And they take a digger at the end of the article, they're saying, clearly eating sugar, I'm assuming she avoids it, you know, can create learning disabilities. Oh. like it's crazy I'm like no no there is yeah. any of evidence if you do a little digging yeah yeah gratefully you've done for us and pulled it all together so tell us a little bit about 
that timeline, what can we expect in terms of the changes of the brain? You're you're so uniquely able to talk about, you know, at 90 days, what are you seeing at six months and a year and three years out? Like, is there some trends that you could share with us? Yeah, you know, I haven't delved um, deeply into that question of the timeframes, I think more in terms of, um, I mean, it's a great question. I know that like with alcohol use disorder, the brains start to look much better at one to two years, the brain sizes, um, resume, you know, sort of revert to normal, for example. Um, but I, you know, I think that would be a really interesting study. Um, I certainly doubt that there's been a lot in the food addiction area to just really define those different um, qualities. But I do know that, you know, I think that there's pretty clear evidence that there's withdrawal. And then there's, you know, the, everybody talks about post-acute withdrawal syndrome, um, which you know, in my, I, I, there isn't much evidence for, certainly we see it clinically, but there isn't a lot of studies on it. Like, mm-hmm. so I see it in my, you know, sort of stuck in the science world mind as two phases, like withdrawal and then repair recovery. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I think it withdrawal repair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and certainly like, you know, and I, I just feel like, you know, it's what, I feel like everybody's story is so different too. Like, I feel like some people, they just like pop right out of it. And then some people take a while, maybe they have some comorbidity, like psychiatric comorbidity or something that needs a little boost with a medication or, you know, targeted therapy for whatever is lingering trauma Mm. or whatever. But, you know, I just, I I don't know. I don't know why that is that some people seem to get free of the cravings pretty quickly versus other people struggle longer term. I mean, I think a lot of people in the food addiction treatment world um, seem to like think that it might be that there's still a food in the in the food plan that's not helpful for that particular individual and that may be a big part of it but that totally can can be a part of it um I remember reading a very fascinating slightly depressing but very fascinating study done with rats I believe maybe mice I think it was rats cruel as it is Dr. Wilcox cruel as it is this is what they did oh They took these rats, they measured their baseline dopamine, they got them addicted to some substance, I think it might have been cocaine, maybe it was alcohol, can't recall. And uh, then they tested to see what happens to their dopamine levels and how they spike and the numbers and the averages and how long it took and all that stuff. And they got them all sort of like all jacked up on it. And then they took it away. And then they tested to see how long it took for those rats to get their dopamine levels back to base back to that healthy normal range and for most rats and I forget the stats now but it was for most of them over 50 percent within 90 days they were really close to right back into their range and then at six months there was another there was another percentage that had sort of finally come back to base and at nine months there was a few more and at a year there were still some that had not come back to base I know it's sad. I'm like, oh, those poor buggers. There's just some of us that are like that, that we just feel miserable longer. But at the year and at the year mark, they actually stopped the study. Um, but it was very, very few. And the question, you know, it does beg the question if they put them in the rat park with those, did those mice need more stimulation? Like, is there some other kind of intervention that would have helped them yes. come back down to a healthy dopamine baseline? Okay. But the bottom line was, is that we could see clear milestones in terms of that you know for most people 90 days is where there's quite a dramatic shift mm-hmm. in that you know that that obsession that oh I gotta have it and the jonesing that you know all that kind of it's it, there's a real shift so 
There's encouragement there that just hang on one day at a time, be consistent. And the minute they gave them just a little, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they set them back, not, maybe not totally to day one, but they set them back, which is why consistency is, is is key. Yeah. Yeah, It activates the memories um, very quickly and very, you know, the memory of like using a little bit of, you know, if I was to have a cookie or something, it would activate my memory and I've experienced this so many times. I know this to be true. It activates my memory in, in some way, you know, not like memory, like in the way we think about it, but it activates that that pathway. So it reads, you know, causes that circuit to come on. And then I don't know when I'm going to come back. I mean, I, you know, it could be months. Um, so it's just, it's just a really, yeah, that, you know, just because your brain has recovered from the dopamine perspective, doesn't mean that you're not at risk of kind of getting sucked back in pretty quick, unfortunately, unfortunately. Right. Because I I like to think of it sort of like this little fire that was raging, this raging addiction, and then we get it all settled and calm and this little baby tiny ember that's just sitting there causing no harm. But you know, yeah, that first bite can gasoline. Um, (laughs) And unfortunately, though, sometimes it's like just this little poof. And then we think we got away with it. and We're good. And we've gone a couple weeks and oh, I just had one cookie and I was fine. And I think I might be cured. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then you're like, I think I got this. I can moderate now. And you're like, no, give it it a few months and you'll be back in the ditch full on. (laughs) Yeah. I know. And some of us are, I mean, I have been a very slow learner. I unfortunately have tortured myself with, and I hope I don't go back and torture myself more with more like, you know, experimenting, but I mean, I've tortured myself with those experiments mm-hmm. enough, you know? Mm. So, um, I know. And eventually, eventually thank God the light bulb goes on and you're like, right. Yeah. No, exactly. I just don't pick up the first bite. It is Russian roulette. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> I might look like I'm getting away with it. And I, wow, I even left a little on my plate. And yeah. aren't I wonderful? And then before I know it, yeah, no, yeah. off the deep end again. So as, tell, talk to us a little bit about, um, so there's definitely an overlap between people who are addicted to refined processed carbohydrates and people who binge eat and people who restrict or anorexic and people who just compulsively eat, right? There's overlap there, but how do you know the difference between someone who let's say has a binge eating disorder versus like binge eating disorder and addiction? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's an important question because for those of us working in the food addiction world as providers, or those of us working in the eating disorders world, um, to be aware uh, that there is uh, there, you know, we need to be aware of both sides of the coin because so you know I'm you know I'm sure you've talked about this in your podcast but like you know if you're treating a uh, in a typical eating disorders treatment model um treating somebody with say anorexia bulimia or binge eating disorder um the dietary recommendation is generally one of all foods in moderation and where people are encouraged to eat um you know like uh even to learn how to eat ice cream or, you know, things like that. So which includes sugary foods Um, and getting people to sort of eat regular meal plans and things like that. And um, whereas a food addiction model, typically, you know, again, it's things are gray, harm reduction, abstinence. What does that mean? Everybody's a little different, but there's a sort of push towards removing trigger foods or certain foods that are problematic for a person from the diet, almost exclusively or exclusively um, for freedom, you know, not because it's like mean or something. It's just that helps. And um, so these two models of care are 
diapole opposites, right? So, um, and it's, so it's really important to be able to figure out, um, to, to know, you know, if you're going to, if you suggest a food addiction approach, are you going to trigger somebody's eating disorder and vice versa? If you suggest an eating disorder approach in somebody who has florid food addiction, you know, they could just continue to struggle and not, not get well. And I've seen that a lot in, in my experience of working with people on both, you know, both sides. It's, um, so, um, so to figure that out, I mean, it's, it's takes a, certainly a clinician, um, we need to study it rigorously. I think we need to figure out how to do that best, but, um, and it hasn't been well studied. And I think if, you know, that's just like high up on the list of things to do, uh, from a research perspective, as soon as we can get it in the DSM or, you know, get funding for it. Um, but, you know, in the, in the interim, you know, there's, um, so my book, by the way, will like go through a lot of this stuff and it defines um, bulimia. I don't think I talk much about anorexia because it's pretty clear, like somebody who's restricting, you know, it's pretty clear, like if somebody's restricting what they're taking in and um, is underweight and dangerously underweight, you know, I think a food addiction model is most likely not going to be the the treatment for them, at least in the short term until they get weight restored. Um, so I think that one is is pretty clear, but the people who have bulimia and binge eating disorders, some of them might have food addiction, and some people with food addiction may have more of a you know a binge eating disorder problem that needs to be treated with, um, you know, an all foods in moderation approach. And um, you know, do I have the answer how to distinguish it? No, unfortunately. Um, but I can say that the you know besides the removing a little bit of food from one's diet. Um, you know, removing certain foods from one's diet. I don't think the approaches are that dissimilar. Because I, one thing I think that, like, has been key for me and seems to be key for most people is to not to not diet, not get hungry. Um, no matter if you're in a food addiction approach or an eating disorders approach, like just eat enough healthy, good food, like good protein, vegetables, whole grains, you know, if you have carbs in your diet, whatever, like to, cause hunger in both models is a, is a problem. So I think just like having that as a base is, um, you know, important across models. And then, um, you know, I think looking at weight, looking at history of dieting, like, you know, I think looking at, um, what you've tried before, like somebody, who has binge eaten, eaten, binge ate for a long time, um, never gotten treatment, never done therapy. Um, you know, it may be worth doing an eating disorders approach, um, and you know, and bulimia, bulimia, whatever. Do the thing that we know works for many people: the eating disorders, all foods in moderation approach. But if that doesn't work, maybe it's time to integrate. And in the ideal world, soon we're going to have integrated approaches where everybody's talking with each other yes. and collaborating and we start to figure out a way to you know um to you know really identify that i think um you know i think a lot of people that have the binge eating disorder but not the addiction or the bulimia but not the addiction um may not and i'm just making this up but may not have like specific food obsessions may not have an addiction history in the past may get better with just the therapy and all foods in moderation. They may improve and stabilize without removing certain food groups from their diet. So I think that, you know, might be another kind of branch point for people. Um, so. mm. 
What do you think? What's your experience? I, I totally, totally. And I've had people come who've been anorexic, bulimic, binge eaters who come out of sometimes even residential. They've gone away for the treatment and they were forced to sit at tables and eat ice cream. And then they would jones all night. They didn't know they had an addiction, right? It wasn't until they found the addiction model where they went, oh my God, it was like, it was just like so much easier. Right. And they knew that they were they were getting loving care, that they were doing their best to try and get them to be peaceful with all food so that they didn't feel deprived and didn't feel compelled to binge. They understood what they were trying to do, but it didn't work with them until they, they added in the addiction piece. And then I've also had people say that that they they had to do the harm reduction approach, that they knew eventually they were probably going to land in abstinence, but that they needed to do that. I'm giving myself permission to eat these foods for now. I'll take out the really awful white sugar. I'll leave in the maple syrup. I left in maple syrup and honey because I thought like I'm Canadian, I have to have maple syrup. And honey was like our ancestors ate that. It's full of enzymes. It's an antibacterial. It's even anti-candida right? The addict brain will justify anything very brilliantly. And so mine did, but eventually you go, Hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. Right. And just like you, you just phase stuff out. I did. I think we all do the harm reduction approach actually. And so it's just whether how conscious you want to be about that reduction. And when you're ready to let, let the next, you know, food that's still triggering that desire for sweet go. And so you can journey through that. And when you're ready, you just let it go and it's easy when you're ready. Right. And so I think that that is one of those things that we can invite people to be curious about. Do you want to try it? Yeah. Do you want to try 30 days, just whole foods and see how you feel like not forever, not just experiment. Like, do you want to run this? I'll run it with you. Right. That's a really cool way of giving people choice. Yes. So there's lots of different different ways that we can hold hold space for people to experiment to figure out what what works. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sort of having a you know a non rigid. I mean, not, neither side should be rigid. I think, um, but also in the you know as a food addiction provider, to not be like you have to eat this food plan with these. You know, like this is the this is the only thing that's going to get you well um but you know sort of being as a provider more i don't know you know a little like harm reduction and um you know incorporating some of that softer language um although to bust my own butt here by the time people come to me i do give them a meal plan right yeah. but i don't tell them what foods to eat and i sort of give them some rough portions and try that out and and but i have people that run from carnivore to keto to whole food plant based right so that's very very bio individual but yeah. there's definitely um a place to say try this start yeah. here Totally. Let's give it a run. Give yeah. give it a whirl. Let's right. Yeah. Let's stay connected to your body and see what it's saying and how your mind's doing. And you got to do it long enough to get good data because after day three, you know, you can't call quits on day three. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be vegan <laughs> on Monday and keto on Thursday. That doesn't work. <laughs> I know. You know, I am I am the day three failure queen. I mean, it's just it's amazing. I'm like, oh, I could do this for 30 days, you know, like, and then three days, it's like the justifications are and rationalizations are just, I mean, I'm a fairly intelligent person. Like they come in and like mess everything up. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating. fascinating. Hell of a journey. Really, really <laughs> interesting. So tell us what you know so far or what we know so far about what does work for addictions, including sugar and food addiction. What's been your yeah. experience? 
So um, I guess, you know, there's so many things, support, um, some sort of abstinence for me. Um, uh, and I think for many people, you know, even in like other substance use disorders, people don't need to be abstinent necessarily, but significantly reducing the substance that you have a problem with. Um, I've found it much easier to just be, and most people seem to, in my experience, just get rid of it. It's so much easier than having to sort of check yourself in your thinking all the time. Um, Can I answer that for one quick second? Yeah. Okay. I, I Sorry to interrupt you. I actually hate doing that, but I just had this spontaneous um, thought about how I think of my own abstinence as breaking up with a very charming, very rascally, uh, very amorous, very fun, and also really, really dangerous and toxic boyfriend yeah. who, you know, that this whole sort of idea of like friends with benefits, occasionally we can get together. And, you know, like that was way harder because you can't ever not have time with that, that addiction, that food or that, that person, if we're going to personify it and not get brushed with the dark side of it. Right. Totally. And to, and to feel like all, oh, oh, I yeah. don't, it always bites me. I like, I never feel good after I, you know, I spend time with this person. I really just need to break up. Yeah. And once yeah. you're broken up and they're not in your life anymore yeah. and you're free and you sell off into the sunset, it's like, it's better. It's better. It's so much better. In fact, what is reminding me of, I just heard a um, TED talk about decision-making and I forget who it was, but they said something like the people who make a decision and don't have like the backup plan floating around in the back of their brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, if you have the backup plan, if you have like, well, I'm going to do this decision, but maybe I'll change my mind and go back to this decision that those people are less happy than the ones that just say, I'm going to make this decision. Yeah. You That's know? awesome. That the Isn't decisive that? decision, it's a breakup. We're done. We're just yeah. done. We're just done. We're moving. I'm going to fall in love with broccoli now. It seems impossible to me right now, but it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, Sorry. so yeah. So, so those, yeah, no, no, that was great. Um, so the so tool yeah, so of abstinence. Totally abstinence, you know, support. I think one thing that probably I can contribute that a lot of other um, of the podcast people might not is the medications piece. So as a psychiatrist, I am a believer in medication-assisted treatment for the treatment of addiction. So um, that's not just the medication to get people through withdrawal. It's the medication to support people to, um, you know, not have craving um, or to be have a little bit more impulse control or to not be so, you know, have so many sort of tough emotions to deal with. These things that take us off the rails. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of um, medication assisted treatment. So in the, in the food addiction realm, you know, in, in the, with all the different substances there's sort of, a, you know, three or four medications or more like that, you know, are best that we've studied and show benefit, like prevent relapse. Um, and, um, and I think there are some for food addiction that, you know, can be considered um, and are not probably easily available, readily available for us because people with food addiction, because psychiatrists don't, it's not an official disorder. It hasn't been well studied, but, you know, some of the medications that we use for like binge eating disorder, for example, is um, naltrexone. Mm-hmm. So it's a medication that in alcohol use disorder blocks the craving, right? Um, and it blocks the brain lighting up to yeah. an alcohol cue. So, and it also helps people with binge eating disorder. Well, probably, I don't know, but it's also going to be blocking people's brain reactivity to food cues and helping people not relapse back into, you know, 
overeating. So, so some of them, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like Vyvanse, which is another one that's approved for binge eating disorder, which is a stimulant because mm-hmm. it's a stimulant, it may or may not activate the brain chemistry, um, the dopamine system. And, you know, I, I'm a little wary of that. Um, but, you know, for the right person who has like really bad ADHD on top of it, it might be an appropriate intervention. But I, I am a fan of sort of these other medications that don't have ad- addiction potential. So, you know, in somebody who can tolerate it, maybe topiramate has shown some evidence. That's an anti-seizure medication that um, helps people, uh, you know, not binge as much and gives them a little more impulse control in some people. Um, and then the SSRIs, the medications that we use for like, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, again, not for everybody, but for somebody who has really struggles with depression or high levels of anxiety and just can't get abstinent because those factors are getting in the way, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it'd be really supportive. So I, I guess my, you know, and, and other medications too, but I guess I just wanted to say that, you know, getting a consultation with a, and this is the hard part, psychiatrist who kind of knows what they're doing in the food addiction realm. And that is hard because the psychiatrists are oftentimes working in the, um, uh, you know, eating disorders or have no idea about any of it. Um, but, you know, I think can be, um, can be supportive, um, certainly doing therapy for anxiety and depression, if that's something that's going on for you, um, cognitive therapy to work on those cue sensitivities or emotion regulation based therapies. So I think like getting professional help, um, you know, for many of us, probably most of us can really be like um, a key piece as well. So, and then support, like, you know, I've loved AA for, I've still go to, I still have an AA meeting that I love going to. So 12 steps for some people, depending on, you know, if it's a good fit, if they find a meeting can be awesome. Other types of supports groups can be awesome. You know, I think, um, and then exercise, oh my gosh, getting outside of, I don't know, you, you're a fan of that too, you know? Yes. Um, and it does restore the brain chemistry, like it restores the dopamine function, you know, it's um, studies have shown that it, the dopamine, like the changes in dopamine function restore more quickly in people with methamphetamine use disorder, for example, if they're undergoing an um, exercise, re- you know, routine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just so exciting. I mean, and I, I feel like for me, like the impulse control and just the joy and the happiness, you know, those mm-hmm. kinds of things have been cute for me. So the feel the feel good, right? I mean, the, our great pleasure used to be Black Forest cake, and now it actually gets to be a hike in nature or yes, uh, yes. Yeah. And still feeling that joy. I know know? it's as good. It's better. It's better, but you, you, you you won't believe me until you get there. I know. Wonderful. Right. So there's so many tools and there's so many right ways of doing this. And for some people, the 12 steps work and for others that just doesn't seem to, to bring them to where they want, want to be. I'm intrigued by the medication piece, particularly the naloxone, because I know that's used. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just confirmation that sugar is an opiate. Right. Because it blocks it, it fills in the opiate receptor site. So when the sugar comes in, it's not lighting us up. There's like, yeah. And then we get to experience what most people or well, people who are not addicted to sugar experience when they eat a chocolate chip cookie there. It's like, it's kind of nice, but it's okay. Nothing great. But when our brain is like, wow. Yes. That was wonderful. Yes, <laughs> right? totally. Yeah. And so when that drug naloxone comes in and, and fills in those opiate receptor sites and the sugar can't do its magic in our, you know, on our moods and our neurochemistry, we're like, oh, 
I could take that or leave that now, right? And so it's good to confirm for ourselves that this really truly is an addictive opiate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, it's um, naltrexone, which is different than naloxone. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Just to clarify. Um, But yeah, but no, I totally agree. And I think the, um, you know, the medications are, you know, on the flip side, we've got this Ozempic thing coming out, you know, this medication for weight loss, which, um, you know, has been, proposed in amongst my colleagues to be studied for the treatment of alcohol and nicotine as well. So there may be some addiction circuitry that it's acting on. But what concerns me about these, um, some of the medication, you know, many of the medication based approaches to weight loss is that if you're just using it for weight loss, it's um, only going to keep the weight off while you're on the medication. And really with these when from from the MAT approach or the medication assisted treatment approach, the idea is it's more of a bridge. You know, people may stay on it for six months, a year, or something like that, just to kind of get through that initial phase. But it's, you know, the idea is that you don't need it for long because you're you're basically helping yourself get into a new lifestyle and help your brain recover such that you can then you know, sort of be off the medication and free. Um, yes, yes. And it's funny too, because I have lots of people been on SSRIs for years, decades, and they come in and they start cleaning up their diet and moving and, and, you know, then they, they start phasing that, that, that off too, right? Like that it, it's, 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 yeah, you can go on and you can also go off and yeah. how many, what percentage of your clients would you say, um, take you up on the offer of p- potentially some pharmaceutical support? So I don't have a um, food addiction based practice. I just have a general psychiatry addiction practice. And um, so 99% of my patients are on medications of some kind. So as a psychiatrist, it's, um, you know, that's what they're coming to me for usually is medication and therapy. I do therapy too, but you know, you can get a cheaper therapist um, that, you know, without, you know, if you don't need medication. So an actual doctor piece. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. And right, they're probably coming on medications, let alone ones that you might suggest. That's totally, that makes sense, of course. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Is there anything? Oh, one more thing I wanted to say about exercise is that it's so, so, so important that when we use exercise, or sorry, when we start to enjoy moving our bodies more and enjoying exercise, that the, if the thought comes in, oh, I'm burning calories or I'm doing this for weight loss, you've just wrecked the benefits. Mm-hmm. can't do it for that reason, right? The brain knows, the body knows that you're trying to get it to move to change its body shape. You go out for pleasure and pleasure alone. Yes. Not going to have the same intended benefit. So yeah, it sucks the joy out of it when you're forcing your body to go move because you think it's good for your waistline. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about the calories on the exercise machine or something, it's just, you know, there's nothing joyful about that but right. just to get out and um, get out and be outside and spend time with the dog or, you know, and, and you start I mean, for me anyway, and I've kind of always been an exercise lover, but I do get a runner's high. Um, you know, I do get a high when I get past a certain threshold of exercise. So I don't know. I might be lucky that way, but well, um, we're addicts. We're talking to people who fall on the addiction spectrum. I mean, and, and you're lucky. I was thinking in the back of my head, oh, thank God she didn't get introduced to uh, harder drugs, right? Because cigarettes, yeah. alcohol, and sugar, right? Like you probably would have taken it to like oh. a fish and water. 
No, like, I would have. I would have. I would have. Love this. Bring like, it on. Give me some more. Life would have been over. <laughs> life, life would have been a little tricky for a little while. So you got over that one too. But um, yeah. And so we can get, usually many of us can get lit up on exercise. We just have to do it long enough and vigorously enough and the right exercise that brings us joy. And we can also, many of us can get lit up on leafy green vegetables. Did you know that? Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me okay, more. Well, it's really cool because so in leafy green uh, uh, vegetables, there's alkaloids called thylakoids. And we know that with like pot, for example, uh, the marijuana plant, it's the alkaloids that make people high. Huh. So in leafy greens, there are alkaloids that if you, and if you eat enough of them and you're sensitive to them, you can literally have a lifting of the mood. You can feel like, oh, I'm high on life, but actually you're just high on your parsley. So yeah, eat them if you can. Some people, you know, don't like them or they can't digest them or whatever. But if you can experiment with that, because maybe you might discover that your beautiful attic brain (laughs) can get high on walks in nature and parsley and who knows what other wonderful natural things as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one other thing I want to bring up too, as far as like, um, you know, um, important for recovery you know, elements besides all the things that you mentioned, but is um, kind of learning to tr- trust your, find your bliss. Like, like I think for me anyway, it, it was a really important part of my recovery when I'm not in my um, happy place, if I'm doing like too much of some sort of work that isn't good for me, or if I'm, um, you know, just like pushing myself too hard or not getting enough sleep or, you know, um, not getting outside or, you know, certain, like if I'm just not doing the right balance of self-care and, and work, um, or relationships or whatever that, that then my addiction mind flares up. So I think that, you know, it's sort of like a lifelong process of like, and I, I put it high, you know, some people like, you know, in a family of people that don't really believe in psychiatrists are like, why are you always thinking about your self-care? And I'm like, but it is, it's really important for me to, to stay, happy like I just need to and and to not over engage in stuff that doesn't you know feed me so I think for all of us and especially you know those of us that are that are women and maybe doing even more self-caring than or not self-caring but others giving yes um um you know it's it's I think it's a really essential piece what Uh, do you think agreed yeah yeah totally agreed absolutely yes we're often you know I, I say that um it's a little awkward that I say this, but it, I think it's true that I think that sugar and work, you know, being busy and giving and doing is mm-hmm. to women what porn, pornography and alcohol is to men. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And we don't see it as women when we're in it. We're just busy. We go, oh, I got all these, I got work, I got kids, I got parents, I got my volunteer work, I got my church, whatever. We 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 just see, we can't even imagine that there's places we could pull back and create some more space for ourselves like because we're so in it. Same thing with sugar, that when we're in it, we just see it as lovely. It's not the problem. My God, it's helping me with all my life problems. It's the best part of my life right now until yeah. we see it. And I think men are the same. Yeah, they yeah. they think their beer is harmless. They think their porn is harmless. It's no bueno, as they would say in Mexico. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up today on the topic of sugar, food addiction, sugar addiction recovery? You can think of off the top of my head. Do you have any more questions? Anything that you're no? Okay, yeah. Okay, I think we're good. Yeah, ended well, there. Thank you so much for your sharing your journey and your expertise with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to meet you.
Thanks for tuning in this week. If you would like more interviews, more information, and more inspiration on how to break up with sugar, go to my YouTube channel, Kick Sugar Coach, or my website, kicksugarcoach.com. See you next week.